So our sermon today is taken from Exodus 18. This is the word of God. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, your father-in-law Jethro am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me, and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses 
but in a small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Eric. Friends, let's pray one more time before the preaching of God's word. Father, as we open up your word and we dive into it and study it, I pray that you give us eyes that see and ears that hear and make your work more effective in the hearts of the people here through your spirit, more effective than any words anybody can speak about from any uh, stage, Um, but make them truly and really vivid as you give them mercy um, and, and make yourself known to them. Show us, Father, through this passage, your redemptive plan. Show us Jesus, and in his name alone we pray. Amen. So, friends, we're continuing uh, through the series of the life of Moses, and this series has been with us for a few months now, and we're going to continue to do it until the end of the year. December 29th will be the last Sunday that we're going to close this series. And so far, if you've been with us, or if you haven't, then you maybe know the stories, we've seen some pretty spectacular things, right? God delivering uh, plagues to Egypt, 10 crazy plagues to Egypt, God splitting the Red Sea. And after this chapter, next week, we're going to see in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, uh, God's presence, it put Mount Sinai on fire, and it quaked it because his glory was so thick, and then God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. These are pretty big deal events, right, in light of, in light of God's plan of freeing a people for his own glory. That's why Exodus chapter 18, the one we just read, it feels a bit weird. Why? Because in the middle of all that, we see a random scene here of Moses doing what? hanging out with his father-in-law. It's a bit anticlimactic, don't you think? And some commentaries would even say that it's disconnected from the, it's so disconnected from the bigger narrative of God's goal of gathering a people and building up a kingdom for himself. This chapter feels so disconnected from that that it doesn't seem like it belongs there at all. But I think it's actually very connected. It actually gives us a whole lot of insight about God's people, about God's kingdom-building plan, both back then in Israel and also as it continues today in the church. There's three things that I want to point out from the passage about how God desires his people, his kingdom on earth to be. There's three things I want to say that I think these three things could also give us insight of why the church is so messy today, okay? Why is there so much infighting? Let's take a look. Three things. God wants his people to be multicultural, interdependent, and intuitively, intuitively obedient. Wow, I said this better in the first service. (laughs) Multicultural, interdependent, intuitively obedient. Okay, those are the three things God desires for his people to be. Let's go to the first one, multicultural. Where do we see that in the passage? All right, start at verse one. Look, Look there. You see Jethro's identity. Who is he? He's a priest of Midian, right? The first thing we learn here is that Jethro is not an Israelite. He's from a foreign country called Midian. And also, he is who? Moses' father-in-law, right? Moses married a woman named Zephorah in uh, uh, Zipporah in Genesis chapter 2, who is Je- and Jethro is her father. And Zipporah there is, is mentioned again, her children as well, in verses 2 to 4. Now, back to verse 1. Look at the reason of why Jethro approached Moses. Because, and I quote, he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people, uh, for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, okay, at this point, the 
careful Bible leader, reader should be a little worried. Why? Because up to now, every time a foreigner, a non-Israelite, heard about God's redemptive plan, heard about God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, whenever a foreigner hears about it, the response has been pretty bad. It's been negative. First you know, example is Egypt, right? They heard about God's redemptive plan. That didn't go too well, <laughs> right? They responded pretty negatively to that. And then in Exodus chapter 15, if you read Moses' prayer after, he was re- after they were redeemed after the Red Sea, he worshiped God and prayed, and sung to God. And in one of his lyrics, I quote, he said this, when the nations hear about this, about your redemption plan of, of building a people, a kingdom for yourself, they will tremble, Moses says. There's another hint of how when foreigners hear about this redemptive plan, the, the response is negative. And at, before this, at the end of chapter 17, there's another foreign nation called the Amalekites, if you read it carefully. And they also caught news that God freed Israel out of Egypt. And you know what they did? They attacked Israel. That's three out of three. You know, whenever a foreigner hears about God's redemptive plan of freeing Israel out of Egypt, they responded very poorly. And now here comes, in chapter 18, verse 1, a foreigner, a Midianite, to the Israel camp. And the reader should be asking at this point, oh no, you know, what's about to happen? But for the first time, shockingly, this foreigner responded positively. Look at verse 8. Look at how uh, Jethro, the Midianite, responded. Moses told, which literally means proclaimed there in the Hebrew, Moses proclaimed to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro, how did he respond? Rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. Moses proclaimed the good news to Jethro, right? There was a lamb that was slain. Remember, the Passover lamb? Israel had to kill. And whoever had faith in this Passover lamb, whoever was marked by the blood of these Passover lambs, God delivered out of slavery into freedom. That's the good news. And Jethro rejoiced. That's the first. But not only was he just happy for Moses and Israel, he, he took this personally. Look at verse 10. He personally did what? He blessed the Lord. And then verse 11, we move on to the passage. He said this, this phrase, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. That phrase, now I know, that's a, that's a popular phrase in the Old Testament that, that tells you there's a, a factual turning point that happened in somebody's life. It's like a, the light's turned on. It's like, aha, now I know. What, what happened to Jethro here? He heard the good news of God's deliverance of Israel. He rejoiced not only for Israel, but he accepted Yahweh into his heart. You see, a non-Israelite, a foreigner, trusted Yahweh as the only way to salvation, as the only God. But here's what's more bizarre. Not only did Jethro, this foreigner, become a believer of the Israelite God. Look at verse 12. He brought burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. This is significant. We can't skip over it. Why? Remember, why was Israel freed out of Egypt in the first place? What did God tell Moses while he was still in Egypt was the purpose for their redemption. It's so that they may worship God by burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's the whole reason why they're freed. But if you've noticed, ever since the Red Sea, ever since they've been redeemed, has anybody done any burnt offerings? No. Israel has not, they haven't done this yet. Who's the first person to obey this command to offer up sacrifices and and deliver up burnt offerings. Not Moses, not an Israelite, 
Jethro, a foreigner, a Midianite. You see what's happening here in Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, our first chunk of the passage. It's a stark display of God including into his people someone who is not biologically Israel. That's the point. But why would God do that? We ask, you know, I thought this was all about Israel. Did God just kind of change his mind after he freed Israel? And, oh, you know, sure, I'll, I'll include those people too. Was this an afterthought? No. This was God's whole purpose from the beginning. Let me remind you, just real quick, stick with me. In Exodus chapter 9, you know, uh, uh, go backwards a little bit. When Israel was still in slavery, why did God free Israel just for Israel's sake? No. Let me, let me tell you what God said. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed just in Israel? No. Where? In all the earth. There's this amazing redemption that took place. Why? Yes, so that Israel would be free, but also so that all the earth would hear about it. They were freed in such a dramatic way so that the whole world would hear. One more example. Remember Rahab? Do you guys know who Rahab is in the Bible? She's a Canaanite prostitute. Okay? And you read about her in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, and she helped Israel in their task of fighting against the Canaanites. She, a Canaanite, was on Israel's side. Why? Here's why. Let me quote her words in Joshua chapter 2. She said, a foreigner, a Canaanite uh, prostitute who does not live anywhere near Egypt and Israel during this time, she decided to help Israel for we have heard, see, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What happened to her? She heard about the news of this great redemption and she trusted in Yahweh. God's purpose here is being fulfilled She heard about the miraculous deliverance and she trusted in Yahweh. God delivered Israel for Israel's sake, yes, but also for an old Midianite man. Also for a Canaanite prostitute. And yes, indeed, for all the nations to hear and trust him. God's intention for the beginning was never to build a monocultural kingdom, a mono-ethnic kingdom. It's always from the get-go been purpose to build a multicultural kingdom. But let me present to you that is also the reason why it's so messy. You see? See, out there, you can pick and choose your friends accordingly to your own preferences. Perhaps you speak the same language. Perhaps you have the same cultural idiosyncrasies. Maybe you have the same assumptions about certain things in life. Maybe you come from the same social strata, so you can do the same things. You can pick and choose who you hang out with. But in here, in God's community, you don't have much power about that. God could all of a sudden take some Israelites and an old Midianite grandpa and a Canaanite prostitute Chinese-Indonesian businessman and a Batak teenager and a Padang Indian mixed guy who often gets confused as a Mexican, me, (laughs) a Caucasian middle-aged man and a, I don't know, Japanese lady. Redeem them, verse 10 says. Make worshipers out of them, verse 11 says. And put them at the same table together. Look at verse 12. What were they doing? And then say, 
figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. You realize how messy that table can get? Do you realize how much differences exist between them? How many assumptions and values that are different? How many cultural barriers that exist? The age gap and the formality of communication that happens between the two? You see how, how messy that is? I'm not gonna name churches, but these are not, but these are real case scenarios. Um, one of the ushers in this church was a white Westerner. And uh, she was passing an offering bag to the congregation, and as she was passing the offering bag, she used her left hand, because in America, that's not a thing, right? And it just so happens, the person that was receiving uh, this uh, offering bag was an old Indonesian lady. And I mean, the look on her face. <laughs> you know, she just looked at this white girl, and she goes, how dare you? Offer me God's offering with your left hand. You know, she was just in disbelief and shock. Because culturally, there's just these gaps and these differences. You see, it's messy. But the office is also true. I have seen Indonesians make plans with Westerners, and, you know, one was operating under actual time. <laughs> and the other was operating under island time. <laughs> you know, so 20 minutes late is on time. See, it's, it's messy. You see how messy it can be. But that's just the funny stuff, right? You know, the Midianites, they didn't actually have good history with the Israelites. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 25, Joseph, an Israelite, right? He was sold as a slave to Egypt. Remember that story? Do you know who sold him? It's the Midianites. They don't have the best history with each other. In Jakarta, there are groups of people who haven't had very good history with one another. I was here during 98. I was in fifth grade. I'm not a Chinese Indonesian, but I remember the horrors about what the non-Chinese Indonesians did to the Chinese Indonesians. And hearing some of those stories today, you know, from the people I love who were affected by it, there are groups in this city who do not have good history with one another. How do you reconcile a city like that? I don't know. There's no easy way. And the, the tension, the suspicion that exists cross-culturally, cross-ethnically, cross-financially in the city exists. And God, my goodness, God, not ignorant of these tensions, decides to take people from these groups, redeems them, makes worshipers out of them, places them on the same table, and says, figure it out. Figure it out. And here we are, right? The church, CCC, saying, we're trying. We're really, really trying, but it's so hard. It's so difficult. It takes so much endurance. It takes so much patience, so much patience. And then we remember the very first thing that describes love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's that love is patient. This isn't some fluffy patience you hear in wedding sermons. This is a rigorous, gut-wrenching, teeth-grinding patience that you give to your brothers and sisters in Christ because God has placed you there. 
you know, we, we start to think, man, what if that was God's goal? What if from the very beginning, the goal was never to display an ease of fellowship? What if God's goal from the very beginning, from the get-go, was to display to the world true love, His love, an enduring love, a long-suffering love, a forgiving love, a patient love, a stubbornly committed love, a sacrificial love, through how the people in his community interact with one another, because that's who he is. And we are called to represent him. But I know and I realize it's unbelievably hard. It is. Just take a look at verses 13 to 15. What's going on there? Moses is sitting. He's judging for the people. Why? Because there's conflict. There's disputes. In verse 16, Moses would mediate these disputes. This tells you what? That even back then, even when God's people was still majority, a monoculture Jewish community, even back then, conflict existed. No surprise that it exists now in a multicultural community or majority still that, right? So how can we grow and flourish in unity in a multicultural community that God has placed us together? Well, this next point, I think what we want to grow toward is to becoming an interdependent community. God wants his people to be interdependent. What do I mean and where do we see that? All right. First, what do I mean by being interdependent? Let me say a few things. Interdependence is neither codependence nor independence. Let me say that again. Interdependence is neither codependence nor independence. See, codependence says, I need you to define who I am. Codependence says, I need you to give me a sense of self. I need you to define me. That's codependence. Independence says, I don't need you at all. You see? Interdependence is not codependence, nor is it independence. Interdependence says, I don't need you to define me. I don't need you to give me a sense of self. I get that somewhere else, hopefully, namely from Christ. But I still do want to walk with you, and I do want us to support each other in life. You see the difference? Interdependence, it's not as fragile as codependence. Neither is it as arrogant as independence. This is, I think, the kind of community God wants for us to have, to be able to survive the mess. Okay, where do I see that in the passage? Look at verse 16 again. What do you see the Israelites experiencing? Disputes conflicts, okay? But look, they're out in the open. They're dealing with it. They're talking about it. They're bringing it to Moses, okay? They're, 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 they're figuring it out. See, in a codependent relationship, you'll ne- never have the energy. You'll never, a codependent person will never have the ability to deal with conflict in an honest and healthy way like this because their sense of self is so tied up with what other people think of them They're going to be so worried about micromanaging people's opinions, they're going to end up just shoving all disputes and all kinds of hurts under a rug, you see, because they can't take that. Their sense of self will crumble. And an independent community also won't be able to do this well. Why? Because when conflict happens, guess what an independent person will do? They'll say, see ya, I'm out, because they're not really committed This kind of open figuring it out, open dialogue, communication, trying to work it out, it won't happen in a codependent or in an independent uh, culture. But look at how this community operated in Exodus 18. When there was conflict, what happened? When they had a dispute, they didn't shove it under a rug. They didn't just take off. 
they brought it to the surface, as hard as that is, to each other. We've got a problem, right? Yes, we do. Okay, let's admit it. Let's work on it. Let's go to Moses to it. Is it hard? Is it uncomfortable? Especially in an Asian shame and honor culture to do that? Yes. Perhaps more so here than it is in the West. But we're still called for it. Okay, so how do we, how do we become like this? How, how do we become the kind of community that can be interdependent? Three things I want to point out. Three subpoints under point number two. First, in order to remain committed like this to each other, first, the community has to realize there's a higher moral purpose for it that, that is bigger than just me and you individually. There's a higher transcendent moral good uh, that, that we are purposed for. It, it's more than just us, okay? Let's take a look at verses 15 to 16. The people came to me, Moses said, to inquire of who? Of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. You see, the focus here, even in the midst of conflict, is God and his glory and his laws. There's something greater than each individual person, right? That, that unites the community. That's what we first, we first need to do that. See, again, in a codependent relationship, the focus isn't God. The focus is self. It says, I want to please you so that you would think well of me. You see how selfish that actually is? The focus is me, not, not God. It's a very self-centered way, actually, to live life. In an independent relationship, the focus isn't God either. It's also me because we say, you can't do anything for me. You're, you're bothering me. Is it going to be costly for me to continue in this relationship? All right, I'm out. You see, the focus isn't God either. It's self. But in, in an interdependent relationship, there has to be. There has to be a transcendent good. There has to be a greater moral ob- objective that is greater than each individual here. Okay? Um, that's one. Two. Two, is they have to have a humble leader. Okay, when there's a higher purpose for this, uh, we realize a higher, there is God, one, uniting us. The leadership must also submit themselves to that. Look at verses 17 to 19. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what are you doing is not good. What, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. And then he continues to talk about delegation and all that kind of stuff. And you know, that's just what we all want, isn't it? We want our father-in-laws to take time out of their busy days to come to our job and tell us how to do it. We all want that, right? We all just long for that. We all just want to see that day. And especially if he says what Jethro said, obey my voice. Oh, that would just be amazing. (laughs) Wouldn't it? It will make my day. It wouldn't. This is not a fun thing to hear. But what did Moses do? He listened. You see how humble he is? Look at verse 24. He didn't say, you know who you're talking to? God used me to deliver 10 plagues out of Egypt. God used me to split a sea. I destroyed the most powerful military on earth. My congregation has 2 million people in it, which is the number of the Israelites then at the time. He didn't say any of that. What did he do? He listened. Jethro just knew the Lord the night before. He listened. You see, the application isn't for you to follow every suggestion that comes your way. Of course not. But in order to cultivate a culture of interdependence, 
the people have to prioritize God's glory, this objective good, um, uh, over themselves and the good of the community over their comfort and time. And the leaders must also prioritize God's glory through the good of the community over his own ego. You see. Or else the leaders will pretend to be Superman. And they'll never share the load and responsibility to anybody else. And they try to figure it all out by themselves. Which leads us to our third and last thing about an interdependent community. Is that the whole community must take up responsibility. Okay, let's continue in our passage. Verse 21 22. What was Jethro's advice to Moses? Delegate. Delegate. You're not Superman. Okay? Moreover, verse 21 and 22. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Which, by the way, that description there, trustworthy, able, hate, a bribe, is, is very similar to the qualifications of elders in the New Testament. They should be able to teach, trustworthy, and not lovers of money. Okay? Um, and place such men over the peoples as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Delegate. Leaders cannot have this ego to think they can do everything. And unfortunately, it's been the pattern of most churches, I think, that 20% of the people take 80% of the load, and 80% of the people take 20% of the load. That's been the pattern in most churches. And I'm, it's unfortunate, I think, but TCC, to be honest, we're not an exception. I think that's about the percentage of, that we're working with. And, and to be honest, I'm not trying to guilt or shame us here. To be honest, a lot of that is my own doing. A lot of that is the leader's doing. We haven't really voiced our specific needs. And we're just now starting to ordain elders and deacons and raising up more people to help out. So that is on us. But, but see, the thing is, we, we were kind of able to survive with that 80-20 dichotomy when the church was smaller for the past three years. But, but now we're growing. And to be honest, if I can talk to you members right now, with our growth, the 80-20 dynamic is looking pretty hard and it's starting to feel pretty heavy. We need to move it toward a 50-50 dynamic, okay? Everybody needs to take part as we see here in this, in this community. As much as I wanna talk more about this, I don't have the time. Uh, so quick application, if you're a member and you feel like this is something you wanna help and serve in, uh, in CCC, email. CCC, after the service, tell us that you want to help. If you have a specific ministry in mind, include that in, in, the, uh, in the email as well. And in return, you know, somebody can give you a hug. I don't know, a staff member or something like that. Um, in return, you're going to help CCC become a more interdependent community, which is what we need. Okay? So, all right. How do we handle, let's summarize, a messy community, a multicultural community, redeem people that God has placed with each other, with all our historical baggage, right, between the two groups. Here, here's how we deal with it. One, we each have to realize there's a greater purpose for this group beyond each individual here. There's a greater purpose for this group beyond yourself, beyond your friend. God, there's, a, there, there's our Redeemer, His glory, His uh, fame is what we must be concerned about, one. Two, that reality must be realized not only by the members, but also by the leaders. As the members prioritize God's glory in this community over their own comfort and time, the leaders must also prioritize God's glory in this community over their own egos. 
Third, everyone has to chip in. Everyone has to work in sync. They have to play a role, okay? That's how we, as a messy, multicultural community, multi-age, multi-financial, what have you, can, can work together. But to be honest, I went through all that because it was a huge chunk of the text and I felt like I needed to put it out there because I wouldn't be preaching the text if I wasn't. But I don't think that those three things I mentioned was actually the main point of the text, okay? It wasn't the main thrust of the text. It wasn't the actual solution I think the passage presents in how we can have a flourishing, interdependent, multicultural community. To get to the main solution, we've got to do some extra digging. And when we do, we'll find that the main answer of how God wants to have his uh, community here on earth move towards interdependence and unity and flourish is if each individual member of the community becomes intuitively obedient. Let me explain what I mean and where I get it in the passage as we end in this last point. Intuitively obedient. Okay. What do you think made Moses' job hard? If I were to ask you that question, what made Moses' job hard? It's the amount of people there. Face value, that's what we think, right? The amount of people there is too much for one man to deal with, so delegate. True, yes, but that is not the main thing. The numbers is not the main thing that made Moses' life hard, job difficult. Remember, the issue at hand here is that the people did not know for themselves what God's will is. So they have to go to Moses and ask Moses what God's will is, right? What does God's law say about morality? You know, what does it say about how we live in harmony with one another, about this situation, about that situation? What if this happens? What if that happens? And, and they don't know the law, so, so they come to Moses. And we might think at this point, that, that's easy though. Just go back to the Ten Commandments, right? Don't steal, don't murder, don't mess around with your neighbor's wife. You know, just go back to the Ten Commandments, you'll figure it out. But take a second to think about it. When was the Ten Commandments given? Exodus chapter 20. Where are we now? Exodus chapter 18. You see the problem here? It hasn't been given yet. They don't know. The only explicit laws Israel clearly has at this point is a circumcision law, is the Passover laws, and the Sabbath law. That's it. They didn't have any more details about how to live. And here comes two million people Asking Moses, he took my donkey. Is that okay? Like, what, what do we do? And Moses goes, uh, I don't, it doesn't feel right, but I don't know if it's actually, like, wrong. Was it an expensive donkey? Like, huh? <laughs> All, you see the confusion that can happen without the Ten Commandments? There was no yet defined, codified, written down laws clearly given by God yet to govern them. Foundationally, I think this is the thrust of Exodus chapter 18. There's moral confusion amongst the people, and that's why Exodus 18 was included on the backdrop of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, which happens in Exodus 19 and 20. You see the connection there, the flow? So now he will ha we will have the law, okay? That's what made Moses' job hard. That's why everyone was coming to him for every little thing, because they didn't know what to do. They, they needed help, Okay. So what do they need, ultimately? More than just those three things and how to build a structure and all that. Yes, we need that, but what ultimately do they need? They need a clear understanding of the Ten Commandments, of, of what God actually wants. Yes, even after the Ten Commandments, there's still some gray area, but at least pre-Ten Commandments, God's law was like black and white TV, blurry. After the Ten Commandments, it's more in color TV. You can see it better now. 
okay? And this would make Moses' job easier because the people would contemplate on the Ten Commandments on their own. They'd study it on their own. They'd apply it to their own lives. They'll be self-critical about it, right? The goal here is to make these ten life norms to become more natural, habitual, instinctive, intuitive way of living in the community so that they don't have to ask Moses or other people about what to do about their donkeys. You just would intuitively know, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, right? That's the thrust. Friends, if we want CCC, this community, or whatever church you're a member in, if you want that church to flourish, to become interdependent, to be God-glorifying community, as important as those three things is that I just said, as important as they are, first and foremost, each individual must take God's word and law and study it so much to where you intuitively know what you are supposed to do. So that we would be, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The wisdom part is the hard part, right? Did you know you can be book smart and yet not wise? Book smart is knowing what the Bible says about marriage, okay? God's, godly wisdom allows you to know how then to relate that law to your dating life. That's wisdom. It's a little harder to get there. It's not as clear. What implications does the clear law about marriage have on who I choose to date? That's wisdom. Book smart is knowing where the Bible talks about financial idolatry, you know, in Romans and here and there. Wisdom is, informs you how to apply that to your specific life and current financial situation. It's the wisdom part that's hard. We need to grow in that. And look, you know what you have now? You have more than just the Ten Commandments. You have a clearer picture of God's. You know, Matthew 5, what did Jesus say? The Ten Commandments said, do not murder. But now I say unto you that even if you hated your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. The Ten Commandments says, do not commit adultery. But yet I now say unto you that even if you lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. You have a... If pre-Ten Commandments, it was black and white, blurry TV... After the Ten Commandments was given, it was color TV. Now, after the whole counsel of God's word is written and canonized in the scripture in the Old New Testament, you know what you have? You have ultra HD LED. Clear of what God wants. But you're never going to grow in it. You're never going to be wise in it unless you read it. Goodness, study it, meditate on it, pray about it. Try to figure out how to best apply it to your specific situation in your particular life so that you will be filled in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There are concerns that your teaching pastors need to handle. There are concerns that your lay elders need to handle. There are concerns that your community group leaders need to handle. There are concerns that your Bible study leaders need to handle. But friends, at some point, there are concerns that you should be mature enough to know what to do intuitively, instinctively, because you immersed yourself in God's law and God's commandments so much that you know what to do. If you've just become a Christian recently, then of course, that is a tall order. That's, that's a difficult thing to expect of you. So it's completely understandable, right, that you're asking people and you're figuring things out. That's great. But if, if you've been a Christian for years, there should be a level of maturity that you have an understanding 
to where you intuitively know what God desires in this particular situation. Okay, I'm scared that now no one's going to ask the elders anything. <laughs> that, that's not the goal. I promise you, I want you to ask us things. We love it, uh, and, and we don't want to guilt you to not do that anymore. But at the same time, let this motivate you to grow yourselves in the knowledge of the wisdom of God's word, or else we'll never become a healthy and flourishing interdependent community where each of you also can give uh, uh, as much as uh, uh, you take. We have to move away. We have to move away from this concept as pastors being hamba tuhan, you know? They're doing all the work. They're doing all the studying. They're doing all the growing. And the members just kind of go fund the whole thing. Move away from that. That is not the church. You too are hamba tuhan. You too are servants of God. You too are children of God. God redeemed you. He wants a relationship with you. Grow. No excuse if you're not a pastor. Grow. You're a child of God. Immerse yourself in his word so that you may grow in wisdom. Is it uncomfortable to do that? Absolutely. Does it take time to study it? Yes. Does it require you? Um, uh, does not ignoring conflict and seeking out God's will in the midst of conflict hard? Absolutely. Is it much easier for you to just shove it under a rug? Yes. Is it much easier for you to just come to church as a visitor and kind of blend in without actually contributing and, and ministering in this? Absolutely, of course it is. So one might ask, then why go through the trouble of doing all that? Why do all that for the church? The church has done nothing but hurt me, we might say. The church is nothing but messy. Why would I be willing to dive into that mess? Tell me why the church is worth it. The church is worth it because Jesus is worth it. The church is worth it because he's worth it. Look, the church, it's going to continually disappoint you. It's going to happen. If you think there will ever come a day where you find a perfect church, where no disappointments happen, oh my. <laughs> Go ahead and pop that bubble now. It's just not going to happen. It's filled with messy sinners who are so different than you. <laughs> you have to do it for Jesus, for him. You know, Moses here, all he did was sit down on the judgment seat, judging who was guilty and who was innocent, who has broken God's law and who hasn't, right? But you know what your God did in order to redeem you, in order to save us, in order to include us into his community? You know what he did? He didn't just sit down on his throne judging us. He left it. He left his throne. Why? So that he may declare us who daily break God's commandments as innocent as he takes the judgment we're guilty for on a cross. See, Jethro only heard the black and white, blurry version of the gospel. We now have it through the person of Christ in Ultra HD TV. There was a lamb that was slain, you see. But it's not just any Passover lamb. It was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who left this throne above to become our substitute and die in our place. And whoever trusts in the blood of this lamb will be delivered out of the slavery of sin of death unto freedom and life eternal. Let me end by reading to you a picture of God's people in heaven. We talked about, we saw what God's people look like in Exodus 18. We applied it to how the God's people look like now in the church. Here's how God's people look like in heaven, okay? 
when all is said and done, for eternity, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, the book of Revelation says. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sung a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the picture of eternity. A multicultural people of God praising the Lamb that was slain forever. Is the diversity messy? Of course. Is this uncomfortable? Yes. So why enter into the mess? Because God entered into your mess to save you. He's worth it. And now that you're in him and in his body, the church, friends, endure the mess. Grow in wisdom and understanding of God's word and pitch into your community. Figure it out so that the lamb who was slain for your sins would receive all the glory, would receive all the honor and all the power for that which he suffered. The church in itself maybe won't be worth it to you, but Jesus is. Do it for him, that his glory may shine forth. Let's pray. Father, what a mess you've gotten us into, so to speak. But yet, we know in your sovereign purpose, you have a plan for this mess. And that plan is, as Jesus said in John chapter 13, that the world may know your love by the way we love one another. That is not an easy love. It's not a comfortable love. It's an enduring, long-suffering, patient love in which we endure. And I pray, Father, for all the churches in the city, in this country, and particularly for, for ours here at CCC. Are there age gaps? Of course. Are there cultural gaps? Of course. Are there financial gaps? Of course. Is it hard to navigate through all that? Yes. Give us, Father, a clear picture of your cross where you entered into our mess to save us so that now we would be driven to enter into this mess and figure it out for your glory that the world may see your love through the way we love one another. In his name alone we pray. Amen.